by Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And recently, Robert over at Indie Geek did a video on Isildur, which covered some aspects of how, well, in the thumbnail, he said Isildur did nothing wrong. I don't think he literally meant that in the sense that he did nothing wrong, but he was trying to make the case that Isildur was a much better guy than we might give him credit for, especially if you just watch the Peter Jackson movies. And I've actually been meaning to do a video kind of on a similar topic, and another video on a what-if Isildur had kept the ring and survived. Uh, so I'll be doing that video next, but this is going to have some disagreements with Robert in a few aspects, so you know, go watch his video, which I'll link in the description below. But what I want to talk about in this video is how Isildur's character was not exactly hard retconned, but what I would call soft retconned through the addition of more material that's not included in the original Lord of the Rings published stuff, and how his the idea we get of his character changes because of how those extra things were plugged into the story overall. And this is going to include stuff from The Silmarillion and The Unfinished Tales primarily. So I'm going to look at those and show how when you look at that information, the original picture we get of Isildur, which is at least not horribly off of what Peter Jackson depicts, suddenly looks a lot different. So let's start with the Lord of the Rings material first and get an idea of you know why Peter Jackson might have portrayed Isildur the way he did and why you might have the idea that Robert wants to kind of dispel that Isildur is just this really horrible guy. So in The Lord of the Rings, we don't learn a whole lot about Isildur's history. Almost everything we know about him is in some way connected to the War of the Last Alliance and his possession of the One Ring, which, in fairness, makes what we learn about him kind of a bad set of data points because we learn almost nothing about him except after he came into possession of one of the most corrupting items in the history of Middle-earth. So... Here's a few lines from The Lord of the Rings that kind of paint the idea of who Isildur was, at least post-possession of Ring. So in the scroll that Gandalf finds in Minas Tirith, it says, But for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. Of all the works of Sauron, the only fair, it is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. Now, right off the bat, hearing that, we're looking at a, an obvious case of ring corruption. I mean, it seems pretty clear that when Isildur writes this, he is already being dragged down that path. He uses the word precious of the ring, which is the hallmark indicator that you've got some problems, <laughs> first off. And then he says, I will risk no hurt to it. It's the only fair thing that Sauron ever made, and it's precious to me, though I buy it with a great pain. So he's recognizing it's made by Sauron. It's, you know, it's even caused me a lot of pain, but I still want it. There's a really significant hint here that Isildur is coveting the ring in a way that he would not covet just any old other thing, and therefore, again, another hint that he's being corrupted. Later on, as Elrond is describing the history of the War of the Last Alliance, he said, Isildur took it, as should not have been. It should have been cast then into Orodruin's fire, nigh at hand, where it was made. But few marked what Isildur did. He alone stood by his father in that last mortal contest, and by Gilgalad and only Círdan stood and I. But Isildur would not listen to our counsel. This I will have as a guild for my father and my brother, he said. 
and therefore whether we would or no, he took it to treasure it. So here again, this one's not quite as clear because you don't get those really big markers of ring corruption, the word precious and things like that. But Isildur is taking the ring against the advice of people far older, wiser, and, you know, whatever you want to, adjective you want to put in there. He's refusing to destroy the ring against their advice, and he's keeping it for his own. And why would you necessarily do that? I mean, how much did Isildur know about the danger of the ring? Did anybody really know that Sauron would be able to come back and be super dangerous after this? I mean, he'd already come back from the destruction of Numenor, and Isildur knew about that, so presumably they would at least have an idea that he would be able to come back. Whether the ring affects that analysis or not is another question, because at least Sauron had the ring when he was destroyed with Numenor, and you know he was able to reform himself probably quicker because of it not being separated from it. So maybe that affects the analysis, but how much of the metaphysics of that do the other people even Elrond and Círdan really understand? Uh, who knows? Nevertheless, there is enough here of the rejection of the council of Elrond and Círdan that makes you go, Isildur might be getting a little bit mm, iffy already. So that's another thing that, you know, paints a not-so-great picture of Isildur in The Lord of the Rings. Now, there are a couple of other spots in The Lord of the Rings where we get somewhat better views of Isildur, possibly, but I think they're not really necessarily so much tied to his moral character. For instance, once it becomes revealed that Aragorn is the descendant of Isildur, Boromir, of course, is looking at him like, you? And Aragorn ends up saying, for my part, I forgive your doubt, he said. Little do I resemble the figures of Elendil and Isildur as they stand carven in their majesty in the halls of Denethor. I am but the heir of Isildur, not Isildur himself. I have had a hard life and a long, and the leagues that lie between here and Gondor are a small part in the count of my journeys. I have crossed many mountains and many rivers, and trodden many plains, even into the far countries of Rune and Harad, where the, where the stars are strange. But my home, such as I have, is in the north, for here the heirs of Valandil here have ever dwelt in long line unbroken, from father unto son, for many generations. Our days have darkened and we have dwindled, but ever the sword has passed to a new keeper." Now, it's hard to know exactly what to take from this, but certainly he is implying that he is not as impressive in some sense as Isildur. Is he saying that Isildur would be a greater ally in some military sense than Aragorn? I think he probably is. Is he necessarily saying that Isildur is as good or better in some kind of moral character sense? I don't think we can necessarily take that from this. So, I don't think this really shifts the balance a whole lot. Similarly, there's another one where Gollum is telling Frodo and Sam about, you know, the, the path that they're taking into Mordor, and he ends up saying that Sauron hates Isildur's city. And you could be tempted to take that as a way of Sauron saying he hates Isildur because Isildur is this nice goody-two-shoes, but I don't think we have to go there. Because I think, really, it's more about the fact that Isildur is the one who took his ring, and therefore he's just really mad. Isildur is also the one who rescued the white tree of Numenor by stealing one of its fruit and planting it and keeping it alive. So, Sauron has a lot of reasons to hate Isildur, whether or not we think Isildur is a great moral character. So, 
those are some of the key passages from Lord of the Rings. The two that you might want to take more positively, I don't think really actually change much. The first two give us a little more indication that Isildur was probably at least, you know, being corrupted by the ring, and therefore we might infer he was not particularly strong-willed or a good guy to begin with. However, when we start adding in material from the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales, we get what I called earlier the soft retcon of Isildur, and nothing in this material contradicts anything in The Lord of the Rings, and that's why I call it a soft retcon. It doesn't change the story, but it does change the perception of the story because of its the way it colors our ability to get a firmer grasp of who Isildur is as a person. So the one thing from the Silmarillion, which I already mentioned, is the saving of the White Tree. In the Silmarillion, this is described as a great heroic feat, and that Isildur was renowned for this after he did it. He risked his life. He broke into the chamber or the courtyard where the tree was growing after hearing that it was going to be burned and destroyed by the king of Numenor, and got a fruit of the tree and escaped, barely saving his own life and taking many wounds from the guards who were in the courtyard. So he risks his life to save this tree, and the tree then somehow, for whatever reason, ends up being kind of attached to him because whenever he recovers from his wounds, that's when the tree kind of springs to life and, and the fruit really takes root and starts to grow, and ever after it's connected to his line. So, all of this gives us an idea that Isildur is a fairly heroic character. I mean, he's willing to risk life and limb for, you know, things that are important to Numenorean history and culture, that he's, you know, an opponent of Sauron and the corruption of the kings of Numenor. So, there's all of that going on just in that one event alone. So, that gives us a better idea of who he might be, and therefore, you know, it makes us maybe look at him a little bit differently. Like when he obtains the ring for the first time, is he really just a not-so-great guy who's easily corrupted, kind of like Smeagol was, who, you know, he get he sees the ring and he's immediately corrupted by it because he's already kind of a nasty dude. Now it looks like Isildur is probably not in that same category. But where we get more information, and this is where a lot of Robert's and Geek's argument really rests, is the Unfinished Tales story of the disaster of the Gladden Fields. In that story, and I don't remember exactly the date that it was supposed to have been written, so again, this when these things were written and whatever kind of gives you some idea sometimes of whether or not Tolkien was changing his mind, here it's hard to say because he didn't put enough in The Lord of the Rings to give us a huge history of Isildur, so it's hard to say that he changed his mind. Maybe all this was in his brain from the get-go once he came up with the story, and he just didn't put it in The Lord of the Rings because there wasn't really a place for it. But in The Disaster of the Gladden Fields, we get a detailed narrative of how Isildur came to be attacked on the road back to Arnor, and his entire company was basically wiped out and he himself was killed and lost the ring. And in the course of all this, they're battling the orcs, Isildur and his men. He had three sons with him, two of which had already been killed by this point, and he starts talking to the third, and the third says, you've got to get out of here because we're going to lose this, and you're carrying this ring that we can't let fall into their hands. 
I'm telling you like you told your squire, Ochtar, you know, you told him to take the shards of Narsil, and even though everybody's going to assume he's just a coward to just man up and take it, I'm telling you, you're going to have to do the same thing with the ring. And Isildur basically says, yeah, I know you're right, but I needed you to tell me that because my pride wasn't going to let me do it on my own. Uh, that's not exactly how he said it, of course, but he's basically admitting that, you know, he he wouldn't have been able to do that without, you know, kind of his son's permission, if you will. And he says, you know, I realize, he also talked about, the son talked about, well, why can't you just use the ring to, you know, control these orcs, tell them to back off and, you know, get us out of this mess. And he said, well, I can't because I'm really too afraid to use it because I'm afraid it's going to hurt me like it did the first time I grabbed it. But also I know now that I am not a strong enough individual to actually wield this ring. And he also ends up saying that it should go to the keepers of the three to determine what should be done with it. So there's a lot of things going on in this passage that give us a much deeper idea of who Isildur is. Isildur, much like Frodo, when put into a situation where things have gotten really bad because of the ring, suddenly is realizing, oh, wow, I was kind of an idiot. You know, this tends to happen to ring bearers a lot, uh, at least the ones that have, you know, an inkling of good moral character, unlike Smeagol, who never seems to care. But Isildur and Frodo both have these moments now where, you know, they'll do something, they'll have an outburst, like when Frodo yells at Sam, and then he's like, what have I done? I'm sorry. And Isildur seems to be having that same kind of moment here, and he's realizing, I am an idiot, I should have listened to Elrond and Círdan, I made a huge mistake, and I need to correct it. And he's also expressing humility about the fact that, you know, he's not capable of wearing the ring, or wielding the ring, rather, and he's also expressing the humility of, you know, I, would, I, I do need to listen to your advice, I just wasn't really willing to do it on my own without you telling me to do it. So, all this information we get added from the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales gives us a very different view of who Isildur is. Because we get this information that we didn't have before that paints him in a much more positive light than anything we get from the Lord of the Rings itself. And that's why I say it's a soft retcon. It's like we, the information from the Lord of the Rings, you could plausibly interpret more or less as Peter Jackson actually depicts it in the movies. You don't have to. You could also plausibly depict it in the way that, you know, Tolkien gives us information in The Unfinished Tales and The Silmarillion. You wouldn't necessarily come up with anything that specific, of course, but the point is the information is sparse enough in The Lord of the Rings that you could interpret it a number of ways. You could say that, you know, Isildur was a really good guy and he just fell victim to the ring because he was really upset about his father and his brother being killed and, you know, whatever... But you could also interpret it as, well, Isildur was kind of a not-so-great guy, and therefore when he gets the ring, he's kind of instantly corrupted, and just, that's the end of it. So, there's, the other thing that kind of features into this is the fact that in The Lord of the Rings, there's not a whole lot of description about Isildur's actually escape, actual escape with the ring. He is just described as running away from the orcs who hunt him down by scent and by slot, and eventually gets killed. And that, you know, the way it's told in The Lord of the Rings, you could also just interpret as cowardice. But the Unfinished Tales version in The Gladden, the Disaster of the Gladden Fields tells us it's explicitly not cowardice. 
In fact, the cowardice was him not wanting to leave because he didn't want to be thought of as a coward. So he's actually doing the right thing in spite of, you know, that perception that he knows is probably going to come about because of his actions that he doesn't want to have, nevertheless realizes is the thing that he must do. So there's another way in which the Lord of the Rings, you could draw inferences from it that don't match up with what we learn from the disaster of the Gladden Fields. So there's all this different stuff creates this really positive view of Isildur and gives us a totally different idea of who he is as a person than what we can get just out of the Lord of the Rings by itself. So that is the way in which I kind of disagree with Robert over at In Deep Geek because if you take all the information at the same time, yes, it looks like Isildur is a really great guy who made one kind of minor mistake, minor in the sense of it's an understandable one, not in the sense that it doesn't have many serious consequences. Uh, but, you know, if you only read The Lord of the Rings, you could very easily come to a very different conclusion that Isildur is suspect in a lot of ways and therefore you know if you just had that published material from the lord of the rings i think robert would be wrong in the sense that isildur was such a great guy it's only because we had this later stuff that christopher tolkien published that we can go back and say yeah isildur was actually a really great heroic character so that's my video on the soft retcon of isildur's character and again this shows tolkien at his absolute best in terms of retconning material. I've shown how he's retconned The Hobbit before, where he doesn't exactly contradict The Hobbit, but kind of does. I'll link to that video in the description. Because he takes the original Hobbit story and says, well, yeah, that's actually not how the story went, but it is how Bilbo wrote it. <laughs> so he's really good at retconning stuff because he's really good at finding ways to take stories that he wrote, recontextualize them, re-orient you know, orient them, add new information, and turn them into something very different than what they originally were, which is really cool. Tolkien is so good at this. So check out the video on The Hobbit that I did as another really good example of Tolkien using retcon. And if you enjoyed this video, do give it a thumbs up, share it around, subscribe and hit that bell icon to get all my future content. You can also subscribe on Rumble and Odyssey or on various podcatcher apps. You can also follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore, and you can support me over at Patreon. And I've opened, if you didn't catch last week's video, a Discord server for fans of the channel that you can join, which is also in the description below. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadie.